You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome all into the season of fall. Woohoo! We hit <laughs> yeah. September. <laughs> we finally made it. We did, yeah. This was a, a strange summer, to say the least. Yeah. We celebrated in all the ways that we could. Uh, you know, uh, just celebrating the little things, I guess. And for us, September is really the start of the Halloween season uh, because yeah. we're heading into fall. It's like Christmas time for other people, you know what I mean? Where it starts in July. But uh, no, we're excited about fall. Really stoked. Yeah, basically our favorite season. Uh, we know that is quite the cliche, but uh, we're going with it. <laughs> sure. It is a cliche in paranormal podcasting, I would say. I won't deny myself. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, but to celebrate, we do want to put out some extra content. And so we decided to release two of our favorite episodes from our Patreon vault. So our exclusive vault from times past it's been going we've had this going for a couple years now so there's a lot of fun stuff up there and we just handpicked two to share with all of our listeners yeah so you guys can get a taste of what we're doing over there and uh, we encourage you to go check it out we have a really really sweet community so hop on over there the link is in the show notes below and you can see everything we do on patreon.com it is the best way if not you know it's the best way to support the show and uh, we really appreciate it so go check that out a couple more things on Patreon, we have some sendouts on the way for our patrons, our new patrons, and we just wanted to give a massive shout out to Molly uh, for joining the community there. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Molly. Re- yeah, really thank appreciate you so that. Much. And uh, another big thing, we finally got some merch, don't we, Amber? Oh, finally, <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Uh, it took it took us a hot sec to get there. We kind of hummed and hawed over the years, but you know what, guys? Thanks to Amber here, we finally have some really cool designs, and this is another amazing way to support the show. Mm-hmm. So this link is in our uh, all-encompassing ITP link in the show notes, and uh, it's really cool, you guys. We've got some UFO designs up there. We've got a really epic ITP icon design in red and oh, yeah. blue, I believe. But anyway, yeah. it's awesome. Well, we've got two versions of it. One's like a, a printed version. The other is actually an embroidered, so it's like stitched right on like uh, the little breast yeah. pocket area. Really neat. I've had a lot of fun to designing those and uh, you can find them all at uh, I guess our website into the portal you yes. can browse the collection and basically the link to our Etsy shops on there too totally so, yeah and I will say as well just to remind everybody that all of our epic paranormal stickers have free shipping so go oh, check that out yeah. as well yeah. right now's the time <laughs> limited edition folks <laughs> and without further ado let's get in to the legendary monster the Konkamato. Throughout the continent of Africa, there are particular stories of creatures that are simply not from this time. Beasts like Makele Umbembe in the Congo, lurking in the rivers connecting the dense Congolian jungle and Cameroon. But when it comes to flying beasts, there is another monster whose origins and home are unknown. A creature known as the Kongamato. Massive, unidentified flying entities that to most resemble the likes of a giant pterosaur. Its leathery red and black skin is said to be nearly impenetrable, although few have gotten close enough and live to actually tell the tale. 
But where exactly these creatures reside is still unknown, with most Western researchers believing the Kongamato is nothing more than a cautionary tale. Avoiding the swamps of Zambia, or the mountain caves of other states. We may not know the true home of this cryptic creature, but one thing is for sure, people have certainly encountered them. So join us on Into the Portal for a Patreon-exclusive episode as we search for the legendary Kongamato. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. Welcome, patrons. Good to have you. Yeah, what's up, everybody? Yeah, it's a brand new month. We're heading into uh, spring, thank God. Hopefully. Hmm, yes. It February. Might snow again. You never even know. though it's like the shortest month, it feels like the longest month in yeah. my mind, usually. Extra day this time around. Even though it is the lo- month of love, uh, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> That's what they say. She says, dripping with cynicism. Mm. I feel like next year we'll definitely have to cover some sort of Valentine's Day massacre or something. Or uh, We talked about yeah. that. We joked about covering that this year. I never... Or no, just myths about St. Valentine's. If anyone has any cool ones, throw them at us. Uh, it'll be fun. We want to like do yeah. something weird for next Halloween. Or next Halloween. Definitely next, next Valentine's. <laughs> We're going to make Valentine's more like a Halloween next Valentine's. Yes. Speaking of Valentine's, obviously February has come and gone, and we had two new patrons join us. And shout out to Kim and Lauren. You guys are our Valentine's now. Hey yo! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. No, seriously, it's awesome. Yeah, uh, really exciting to to yeah get some new people on board. Mm-hmm. So we're stoked to have you. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Spread the love. Tell your friends about uh, about uh, Patreon and some of the extra stuff that we have on here. We got a pretty big backlog. We hope you guys have been enjoying it. Yeah. And it's, now it's... we're adding uh, another cryptid to the fold of the backlog. Exactly. So what are we talking about today, Andrew? So this is one that I guess has been on the radar for a little while because it's been residing in a few books we've owned. And it's a strange but also just totally classic cryptid uh, that's been around for a, quite a long time. And that's the Kongamato, mm. which is similar in a lot of ways to some other sort of flying enigmas that we've loosely mentioned around the world, whether it be Papua New Guinea, different things like that. But for all intents and purposes, today we're talking about what is known as a large unknown flying creature from states of sub-Saharan Africa, possibly some sort of giant bat, a Jurassic-era-like pterosaur, which was, of course, a family of dinosaurs that were more, more commonly known for pterodactyls. But the natives of areas of uh, northern Rhodesia, what is now modern-day Zambia specifically, they've got some pretty crazy stories to tell of essentially creatures big enough to take on full-size men, kill them, shred mm-hmm. them apart, pick them up, carry them away. Legends of these creatures called the Kongamato, which translates to various different versions of overwhelmer of boats, and I'm air-quoting here because there's a few different sort of versions of that, but all of them are very ominous and essentially speaking to the size of these creatures um 
which is definitely not something you would want to run into, that's for sure. Yeah, like in my mind immediately, I'm like, what kind of boat are we talking about here? Are we talking about like, obviously it's more like a river system or, you know, like the swamp. Canoe sized, so. you know, like, yeah, smaller traveling or vessels. Like a on rivers. small motor mm-hmm. run boat. Right. Like a river boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. totally okay you know carrying however many passengers but definitely something large enough to and the weird thing is is like with Michele Mbembe which you guys would all be familiar with from our uh, non-patreon episodes you know similar kind of a name would flip over boats was known for that like messing with people in the in the uh the water systems between the Congo and Cameroon mm-hmm. it's a totally different thing when it's something that's flying you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's no. crazy. Flying versus coming out of the water. Exactly. They both have their own elements of surprise for sure. Right. But, but it's, it's a similar idea, though. The idea that this could be like a living dinosaur to a certain degree. Exactly. Potentially. <laughs> well, yeah, potentially. <laughs> I have I pulled a quote here from um, Nick Redfern, who we've we've uh, mentioned before and quoted. He's a contributor for Mysterious Universe, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it speaks r- really well to this monster. So he sa- he has this to say. The name is a very apt one since it had the habitat of, uh, sorry, it had the habit of swooping down on canoes, there we go, specifically canoes, and savagely attacking and killing those using them. It was a huge beast that lived in and hunted in the Jiindu swamps and deeply terrified the people of this area, which there aren't a lot of them because this is a pretty uninhabited area. But there's definitely indigenous populations in the sort of the surrounding areas of the swamp. Mm-hmm. But it's um, a natural wetland that crosses over from, yeah, Zambia into a few other states as well. Mm-hmm. Super remote. Good for a place, something to hide. But yeah. maybe not necessarily a pterodactyl per se. But this was just sort of a, a good quote to reference how scary the beast is yeah. i suppose you might we get, say we get some confirmation on the type of boat right that's important yeah yeah that's interesting though and i actually have a little bit of a more of a nugget related to that overwhelming of boats scenario but uh, we'll get to that eventually you here. save that okay cool yeah but i mean it is kind of curious though because the origins of the actual legend we don't really know how far back it actually goes because a lot of it is translated through oral tradition right and you know i'm sure we didn't come across it in this particular research, but this reminds me so much of like the Godzilla movie we just watched with like the firebird creature coming oh, out of yeah. the mountain. You know what I mean? Obviously that's so much larger, but it just has that same sort of a vibe to it. And when I was reading some of these articles and I added this part in because we don't really know how far back uh, the this creature has been terrorizing the peoples of these states of sub-Saharan Africa. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's become a little bit more modern in terms of like, you know, Christian missionaries asking about it and showing pictures of pterosaurs and pterodactyls mm-hmm. and then people being like, yeah, that looks like this. But that's a lot more modern. So it's kind of like hard to sort of pinpoint, you know what I mean? But specifically, we're dealing with uh, tribes that are from landlocked states of Zambia, which is South Central Africa. These are Bantu-speaking peoples, which is the vast majority of the population of sort of these areas, northwestern regions of Zambia. Much, much smaller groups numerically than the ones living in the Congo, but there are some sort of genetic similarities with peoples living there. But yeah, um, Zambian woodland highlands average about 4,000 feet in elevation. So they're very, very remote regions where there's not a ton of people. There's a very small indigenous population still there. Mm -hmm. But these are the people that are encountering the Congomato. Yeah, and they're keeping those stories kind of within their parameters too, you'd imagine. So when these outsiders come in the 20th and 19th centuries and all that, it does start to spread, but only to a certain, certain sort of 
widespread sort of, you know, right. What am I trying to say? Radius? It, it reaches a, a few, radius. It huh. gets to a few cryptozoologists. Let's just say that. That's exactly where we're heading with this. Uh, let's get into a little bit more of a description of this creature. We've been kind of vague. We described it as flying, possibly a bat, possibly a pterosaur. To most, <laughs> this thing did look like a bird, a really large bird. Some people mm-hmm. compared it to an eagle, uh, but this thing lacked feathers. Like yes. it did not have anything remotely related to that. Instead, it had almost like a membrane or a tough leathery skin that was red in color. And it almost made it appear as if it was some sort of giant bat or some sort of prehistoric creature. It sounds sure. like those wings, right? Like bat wings. Like when you say mem- membranes, like membranous, yeah. that's totally what that sounds like. Oh, but yeah. of course, like pterodactyls as well. Like Potentially. Lizards, I don't know. I wonder, because like there's this whole debate between like, you know, like the, did dinosaurs have feathers? I wonder if this would include that as well. <laughs> well, that's kind of funny, right? We're, I, no we're straddling that, rhyme, that, 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 rhyme, that line. That line. Okay, yeah. Indeed. Anyways, this, uh, unlike a bat, it had a very massive gaping mouth or snout that was full of these razor sharp teeth. Uh, I wrote unlike a bat, but I'm now going to recant that because that definitely is not the case. A lot of bats do have teeth and Mm -hmm. they can look very vicious. They almost look like dogs, some of them, like the larger ones. And possibly capable, well, this is the description of the Kongamato, going back to that, as opposed to a bat, capable of shredding a man in a matter of seconds. <laughs> Boom. Just like in Kong Skull Island. Boom. Yeah. Throwing another uh, pop culture reference there. They picked the guy up. They shred him apart pretty quick. They did. It was like just like they just bit through his entire arm in just one go. I suppose that would be a perfect reference to like a modern day. Obviously, this, that, that movie was like the 70s or whatever, right? And that's what they're referencing. Mm-hmm. It's a modern day film, but they're... The time period is the 70s. Yeah. And here are these creatures on this remote island. Yeah. It's a, you know, a a very unique environment uh, protected by, like, what is it, pervasive storms all the time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this isn't really the case in our story today, but, you know, maybe similar in the idea that it is a very vast territory. There is a lot of, I don't know, like, places that humans don't really want to go because it's not very... Uh, fruitful for them to go searching for these things. But anyways, we're getting off topic already here. I want to get into a little bit of a quote from Adam over at the Pine Barrens Institute. Sure. Because he gets into more of like the specs on this thing. And so he says that the creature is reported to have a wingspan of four to seven feet and a body length of about 4.5 feet, possesses a long, thin tail and a narrow head that appears to form into a long beak that contains many sharp, small teeth. The skin looks like that of an amphibian or reptile, and the feet are reminiscent of a large eagle with talons on the end, while the wings closely resemble those of a bat. And it's depicted as gliding more than actually flying, which... Which is interesting. Yeah, exactly. We can get into that a little bit here. Mm. So could this be... A bat? Could it be some sort of weird, like, mammalian, like, flying squirrel thing? <laughs> it sort of sounds more like I don't that. know. It's kind of weird. Like, the idea that it's not flapping its wings, so it's making these, like, very, like, dramatic swooping and diving motions towards its victims or mm-hmm. the people that it's terrorizing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But the interesting thing about that, I guess, is it will come down to this towards the end and is, like, the where it resides. You know what I mean? Like, if it's just a glider... 
and it's going to take off from a, a like a higher point to be, be able to sort of like hunt and glide down, then it's home in the swamps may, might not make as much sense where you would definitely have to be like a flyer, right, in order to take off out of the mm-hmm. swamp. Like when I'm picturing a like a, a pterodactyl in a swamp-like environment, it's going to be hard to take off. Like that would take a lot of energy, right? Like same as like a duck taking off out of the water. It's like looks mm-hmm. like it takes some effort. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I hear you. And then in order to also be able to shred a man. But this is where this comes in because there's so many different sort of, not versions, I don't want to say that because that makes it sound like it's just a story, but different, very subtle subtleties between the the Congamatos from Zambia, uh, even all the way into Kenya, which isn't even a bordering state per se. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there because it is interesting because this does come up a lot. The idea of gliding, not flying, as if it's so large, it can't even fly. And you're hitting on something there with the whole idea that there are regional differences and there are regional names for this too. Right. Uh, But before we get into that, there were a couple other features here in the description, such as the idea that there is actually no reported speech or sounds uh, that are coming from this creature at any point. That's strange to me. Very strange. Yeah. The idea that there's also an absence of any odors at all. There's not really like, you know, it's not skunk ape we're talking about here, even though we're talking about a, a very humid, swampy area. Okay. Okay. There was this guy, Robert Benjamin, who wrote about the Congamato in his book, Unknown Creatures. And he described how local Africans were actually shown pictures, like you said, of these mm-hmm. pterosaurs, pterodactyls, and that they immediately called it the Congamato, while other prehistoric creatures shown to them did not elicit the same response, which in my mind was very similar to when we talked about Michele and Bembe, where yeah. it was like they knew exactly it was out of the variations that were shown it wasn't as if they were just led to be like yes this is it and that's that kind of thing exactly anyways i just thought that was interesting no i really yeah there's also this idea that we've already talked about here that it resides near these rivers is that because it hunts around there does it nest around there i don't know if you believe it lives in the swamp i guess you would say that it nests somewhere along the river systems and that would be an optimal hunting grounds for well exactly this idea that it it very much like the motions described in these accounts very much reminded me of ospreys and other birds of prey that do hunt in the water they fish so i don't know i was thinking maybe that could be something that it's a possibility yeah and no, and you're right, actually. Not that much bats do that, as far as I'm aware. They're mostly fruit eaters. It might be territorial. The largest of bats are definitely, f- like, fruit eaters, right? Yeah, or insects at most kind of thing. Right, like, yeah, like, other they're ones. not going to attack a man. And no. Very, yeah, very, very strange. They're not going to rip them to shreds instantly, either. That's the thing. Hmm. It's yep. so funny, though, how the, you know, it's... Well, let's get into some of the different names because the regional differences aren't that different. Let's just say that, which makes me believe that there's some sort of a a species that people are witnessing. There might be these subtle variations across states, like in size, or it's a slightly less red, leathery skin. It's maybe a little bit more black in color. But then that's also like, are these creatures more nocturnal or what time of day are people seeing them? Is it always this red, leathery color that just seems darker? Mm. Like oh, it is it's the light affecting similar, the color. You know I, mean? I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I don't know. And to be honest, I don't really have much specifics other than the fact that there are different names for very similar creatures in places like the Cameroons and Ghana. And I don't even really want to try to pronounce these. But one is the Olitu. 
Okay. And uh, there is Sasabonsa. That's the Ghana version. Cameroons was the first one that I mentioned there. Gotcha. And it was supposedly Ivan T. Sanderson. He was more in the Cameroon region, if I'm not mistaken, when he had his own encounter with something very similar. That's Mbembe territory too, what we're right? talking about. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So very, very similar. What if there's more than one species of these prehistoric or Jurassic era <laughs> things lurking around? Or perhaps it is bat. Yeah, we'll get oh, into that. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep it. Always just throw that out there at the end of every sentence. Maybe it's oh, a bat. maybe it's a bat. It could be an well, owl. Who knows? <laughs> you know, going back to McKelly, did we even did we ever even get into anything in that episode about the idea of um time slips or anything like that either? Because obviously we keep mentioning this idea of living dinosaurs. Not mm-hmm. as if we're dealing with a very strange, unidentified species of stork or crane or something like that. Yeah. That kind of comes up, but I think we most hit on that when we talked about the the northern tail from uh, the Yukon. Hmm. Oh, I'm not thinking of the the Partridge Creek monster. That's it. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So this name, I want to come back to this overwhelmer of boats. Mm-hmm. Um, because that reminds me a lot of the monster of Partridge Creek and the knocking over the boulders. It reminds me of Michele and Bembe. It reminds me of these types of... Monsters, dinosaurs, yeah, giants, like you right, like they're large beasts. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's known for it's almost it's sort of supernatural in that sense that it can just be because the description from Adam was of a much smaller bird to overwhelm a boat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is well, it doesn't take much to knock over a canoe. Yeah, I guess uh, that was from Nick Redfern. Yeah. Also, in the mm-hmm. Adam description, uh, you had you had a length and size as well that wasn't particularly gigantic. Not um, gigantic, but when you add a wingspan, like that's pretty sizable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I suppose it would frighten you if you're in a canoe. Yeah, it'd be startling. In order to sort of like flap flap it over, I, I'm not really sure. It's like how it much would be the humans that are basically toppling the scaring boat. themselves into flipping it over. I would imagine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, there were there were weren't just like indigenous accounts. Like we have obviously what we're going to go into right now, some European ones, and they started really early. Like the first one comes from 1923, and we love all the old European accounts. They're so fun, right? Mm-hmm. Because this was an era before, you know. I mean, we're still living in it. Like when we talk to Steve Elkins, like the era of great discovery is still upon us. But for a lot of things, especially animals, when we're losing the number of species we do every year, cryptozoology is such a golden egg you know of Mm -hmm. what can still be found yeah Um, oh definitely but this was the heyday 1923 this was a guy named frank meland who in you know typical fashion of the times uh, published a book called in witch bound africa Mm -hmm. you guys can obviously know what you know i'm talking about there (laughs) 1923 but he spoke specifically of quote a huge flying animal with membranes on its wings instead of feathers teeth in its mouth generally red in color uh and from four to seven feet across speaking to the wingspan i'm assuming right and he reported this back he recorded it in this book and it kind of caught wind a little bit in the united states but he initially uncovered the congamato as part of research into the charm muchiwa congamato which was used by native travelers that was said to protect them in their boats from floods that were said to be caused by the monster so much more of a supernatural element mm-hmm. there you know what i mean that's kind of where he started to piece together this congamato like what is this overwhelmer like exactly. what is this force you're talking about right. and then he got the description a very specific description, mm-hmm. not just a, a god-like entity or something. It's like, no, this is a bird, essentially, that you don't want to run into. A monster. A beast. A flying beast. 
Do you feel there is something in life that is getting in the way of your happiness or overall life goals? Perhaps it's time to try BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is a professional online counseling service that assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist from the comfort of your home. BetterHelp is committed to you from the get-go, from finding a great therapeutic match to making it easy and free to change counselors if need be. BetterHelp.com is available on multiple platforms and across the globe, so you have the help you need wherever you find yourself. Best of all, BetterHelp.com is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, with financial aid available for those who qualify. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash portal. A couple years later, there was a very uh, highly acclaimed British uh, journalist, newspaper man, 1925, by the name of uh, G. Ward Price. And he happened to be friends uh, with the Duke of Windsor, like the current Duke of Windsor at the time in 1925. He's referred to... Or the future at that time. Sorry, the the future, rather. The future. The up and coming. A member uh, member of the family. And he had been traveling in Africa, writing, doing various different sort of like works and stuff as a botanist, as a biologist, and wrote about a bunch of different creatures, but they ended up like speaking to a few different people about some weird stuff that went on. So Mr. Price and the Duke of Windsor were on an official trip to what was Rhodesia at the time. That's like Zambia now, right? Mm -hmm. On behalf of the crown. And they were only there for a little while, but there was a civil servant they spoke to who told them about a man who was wounded uh, when he entered the swamp, when he entered the Giandu swamps which is in northern Rhodesia, known to be the home of, quote, demons, according to the natives that they talk to. So, and this also comes up when we talk about Michele and Bembe, right? The the, the word demon, that came up again. Mm, So is that sort of like a Christianization sort of layered over top of it, I guess, right? It could be, potentially. Also just the English version of something they were afraid of, I guess. Yeah. It all sort of aligns with that. Um, But anyway, so the story goes that this man heads into the swamp, determined to essentially explore it despite of the dangers that were spoken of there and when he uh, returned he was on the verge of death from a massive gaping wound in his chest and it was a pretty mysterious wound people weren't exactly sure what would have caused it but after a little bit of recovery he recounted how a strange huge bird with a long beak had attacked him in the swamp (laughs) <laughs> and he relayed this to the civil servants, which then relayed it to the Duke of Windsor and Mr. Price. Uh, and when they showed this man a picture of a pterosaur in the makeshift hospital that he was in, he screamed in terror and basically ran out of the room. Hmm. Same story that we just recounted a few paragraphs ago about people being shown the picture of a pterosaur and them screaming congamato. Yeah. Pretty interesting. That's uh, that's very intriguing. This was relayed through so how did he members flee? of the royal family. How did he flee if he had a huge chest wound? I mean, I guess in just sheer... I mean, I'm sure he didn't get very far. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't get very far. Uh, but I mean, if you have enough adrenaline and you're freaked out and you can jump out of the bed and run out of the room, probably. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't where wasn't it ended, though. wasn't too what he was seeing, right? This is 1925. We're going to three years later. Uh, none other than Blaney Percival. Ah, <laughs> Blaney. Anyways, uh, 1920. <laughs> you know, Blaney would be a good time at the bar. 
Blaney. He must be. Percival. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I, well, feel like, I feel like it's warden. two people in one with that name, eh? It's Those are double, two different personalities. Yeah, it's not a one name guy. You need both work. You need you both need names. Both, it's yes. a two name pony there. Yeah, and he's sure. not just someone that's the life of the party. He's also an author. He did write this book known as the Game Ranger on Safari. He was a game warden, so this is a very fitting title for someone that wrote that book. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's around. You can get it online on auctions. There was one review which described it as a quote systematic approach to examining various species of big game in Kenya colony. There are plenty of hunting episodes after rhinoceroses, buffalo, lion, and a plethora of antelope. Also, excellent chapters detailing the effect of human settlement, disease, drought, and war on game animals. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. And so this is not just like something that's like a big tell-all, like, you know, like something that's just like made up out of thin air kind of thing that's just you know spouting out whatever kind of magic he wants to spout totally i would take it more as like it's like a manual it's kind of more practical to a certain degree anyways and and it's a recount obviously of his time there but he uh described how there were these nocturnal creatures Mm. that were leaving footprints this is in and around villages he actually was witness to some of these strange footprints and i was kind of bummed to see no description offered of the footprints in in what i could see obviously i don't have a copy of those game ranger and safari books so i wish maybe he'll have more detail in there but it wasn't described as talons or anything like that it was just described as strange right Anyways, besides that, uh, he did ask the local Zambian people, uh, known as the Kitu Wakamamba, sorry, totally mispronounced that, Wakamaba, sure. Wakamaba. That's a little bit closer, I guess. Yeah, that's fun, fun But they say. said that they, this was left by Michaelium, or sorry, Michaelium Bembe. Bembe. I'm already confusing them. Kongamado, okay. You're spreading rumors, Amber. I am spreading rumors. Oh, the Michaelium. Oh, no, fake news. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, but the Kitua were also very consistent in their descriptions of this creature. And this was obviously, we already said, re- recorded by people like Meland and others. And this was including the size, approximately the appearance of the wings, the head, the color, mm-hmm. the teeth, the mouth, yeah. the behaviors, all of it. And yeah, and, and, and pretty, pretty uniform across the board so far. Pretty uniform. We are going to jump a few years down the road again. We're doing the 19... 19- 30s. But we're coming back to a familiar dirty face. 30s, man. The dirty 30s and a familiar mm-hmm. face, a familiar a familiar friend uh, that we've just recently mentioned. Sanderson. Sanderson. Ivan T. Mm-hmm. Very same. And that was in our last episode covering the Minnesota Iceman, of uh-huh. course. Yeah, that was a pretty interesting case. But anyways, getting into this. So Sanderson found himself lead of a team. So just to go, so sorry, just, 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 to th- we're, th- we're throwing that out there, obviously, assuming, obviously we assume you guys have listened to the Minnesota Iceman episode, but true. Ivan T. Sanderson, American zoologist, also known as yeah. a cryptozoologist. I guess, yeah, sorry, I should introduce. He's a writer and essentially he had shot a very large bat uh, by the river in Zambia uh, during this expedition where he was the leader of the expedition in regards to cryptozoology. I guess so. There's a quote here uh, that Amber's going to read. We pulled it from Adam Benedict's website from the Pine Barrens Institute, where Adam's done a very good job of collecting uh, information on these types of strange accounts. You're going to make me do the Sanderson. Okay. So here's here's what Sanderson had to say. Whenever you're ready there. Quote, I looked. 
Then I let out a shout also and instantly bobbed down under the water because, coming straight at me only a few feet above the water, was a black thing the size of an eagle. I had only a glimpse of its face, yet that was quite sufficient, for its lower jaw hung open and bore a semicircle of pointed white teeth set about their own width apart from each other. When I emerged, it was gone. George was facing the other way, blazing off his second barrel. I arrived dripping on my rock and we looked at each other will it come back we chorused just before it became too dark to see it came again hurtling back down the river its teeth chattering the air shooshing as it was cleft by the great black dracula like wings we were both off guard my gun was unloaded and the brute made straight for george he ducked and the animal soared over him and it was at once swallowed up into the night, unquote. Interesting. What do you make of that? Pretty frightening encounter. And I immediately ask myself when he says the size of an eagle, well, there's some big eagles out there. What size are you saying? Like a golden eagle or something? Well, I mean, yeah. obviously, yeah, the largest golden eagles. I mean, those things pick up mountain goats and fly away with them. Mm-hmm. They're huge. He described Dracula like wings, too. Uh, so that's another... So... I mean, maybe. And with the teeth, a... though. The teeth is more bat like. And honestly, like, there were some people that suggested that the creature that attacked Sanderson was uh, the mate of the bat that Sanderson had shot previously, like later or earlier right. that day. Right. Even though, like, yeah, obviously, Sanderson, he's a zoologist. He would be able to recognize a lot of these things. Obviously, split second in the moment when something's attacking you, a little bit harder, I would imagine. But a lot of people uh, say that he didn't recognize the creature. But I'll just say here that. A quick note that Sanderson did recognize a creature as a bat, according to most uh, accounts that I've read, but a previously unknown species or something that just really didn't belong. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there's a pretty distinct difference between a bat with sort of, uh, obviously compared to like the pterosaur or some of these other accounts, like a snub-nosed face versus a beak with teeth. Like that's full of teeth, but it's in a dog, more of a, like a mammal. It's not a long Mm -hmm. beak. Yeah, you know what I, mean? I know that's just it for me. I'm like, I'm, I'm having a hard time picturing the snout per se. Like, is it like, cause I've looked at things. We're going to get into some theories here of some types, specific types of bat and they look very dog-like. They have like more of a muzzle. They're actually mm-hmm. kind of cute to be honest. They're, no, they're not ugly. Cute. They're all like these hammerhead bats, which supposedly that was one theory that came up too in relation to the bat hypothesis. Right. But the idea that is this thing a pterosaur or a pterodactyl in the sense that it has like almost like a pointed back of its head. You know what I mean? Like what does the other features look like? That's yeah. I mean, it's obviously hard to gauge because the, the the sightings are fleeting. They're extremely remote. Mm -hmm. They can pass through the grapevine and people are terrified when they happen. So it's hard to recount exactly what you see. And it seems like these things hunt in strange at strange times. Mm-hmm. Like where it's it's twilighty, it's either dark. It's hard to really make out if if it is a bat, a or bat, if it is something or you know, something else. The tail aspect too, like you know, like there's there's supposed markings of the tail in the ground and all this stuff. There was one guy, Colonel, I want to say, <laughs> Colonel Colonel Pittman, Colonel in Pittman. 1942, reported stories 
that the natives told him of a large bat-like bird creature that lived in dense swampy regions in northern Zambia and that tracks of these creatures were seen hmm. with evidence of a tail dragging on the ground. So that's huh. very interesting. Tracks, again, like going back to what you were saying before, what exactly did these tracks look well, exactly. like? And that's why I couldn't like pull up an actual description of tracks. They just said tracks. I'm like, well, what kind of tracks are we talking here? See, and that came up again with Michele and Bembe, but we had dis- descriptions of the tracks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which I feel like is like more expected because it's a terrestrial like, yeah. be, like rather than being a flying Yeah, you think they're perching on birds right? or perching on birds. <laughs> perching on branches perches like on birds. on trees made of birds. Per- birds on birds on birds. Perching on birds. You don't really hear bats really like wandering around on the ground either. No, and they also don't have tails. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds like... I mean, that sounds like more like the ones from our uh, Thunderbirds episode talking about some of the the ancient species that were mm. not birds of flight, but that were essentially like descendants of the moas and and ostriches and things like that that were giant, you know, mm. how landlocked birds, yeah, like and just massive. Which of course are African birds too, like ost- ostriches and stuff. Like, aren't that you find those in Africa? Don't you? Am I just throwing yeah. that out there totally randomly? I'm yeah. fairly certain that's the thing. I don't know. I thought my head not sorry. necessarily in the states we're looking at, but don't know. Well, I'm glad you found something from the 40s because Mm -hmm. that kind of like filled in the gap a bit because I'm jumping ahead through to the 1950s, the mid-1950s. Okay. And this was a report from a guy named uh, J.P.F. Brown who claimed to see two creatures flying over uh, a place called Fort Fort Rosebury. And he was stationed there working as an engineer. And he, yeah, he wasn't really sure what to make of this. He just quote-unquote called them creatures flying didn't say you know dinosaurs didn't say whatever obviously was unidentified but it was around 6 p.m so decent visibility i guess but depending on the time of year this definitely would have been more like twilight he did say in the end though that after he thought about it the creatures did seem to be almost quote-unquote prehistoric in appearance and shape Hmm which is uh, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Pulled this from a different website. It kind of went in more detail on Brown's account. He estimated later that the wingspan was about uh, three and a half feet. Not super, super big, right? But with a long, thin tail and then a long, narrow head with an elongated snout uh, like that of a dog, mm-hmm. which sounds kind of weird. That's almost like halfway between the long beak of the pterosaur and then like the snub face of a bat. It's like the difference between like a pug and a, uh, and a, and a Doberman just for people out there trying to picture it in their head. Like that's how I'm thinking to myself. Right. Yeah. A a more elongated snout versus like a bat, like more snub face. Yeah. Or like a beak versus a snout. Exactly. Because he goes like, I don't know. It goes on even further here. Like after his initial report was released, uh, there was another, there was a couple in the area Hmm. Mr. and Mrs. D. Gregor, I didn't, I wasn't able to actually verify these two people, just so you guys know, but they ended up reporting that they had seen the same two pair of long, quote, flying lizards in southern Rhodesia, which would now be modern day Zambia. Mm -hmm. Another witness, right in around the same time, Dr. J. Blake Thompson, also reported that natives of the area of Awimba, sorry, the Awimba tribe, also in Zambia, had told him about huge flying creatures. So we have these variation, huge flying creatures, but we're talking about two and a half feet long and three and a half foot long wingspans, but resembling that of rats that would attack humans and Hmm. that they lived in the caves and cliffs 
near the Great Zambezi River. That sounds a lot like bats to me. Yeah, it does sound like bats. Rats, bats. Rats, bats, mammals, mammals living in caves. But these are also scary bats that want to attack people. Are they like rabid bats that are the cause of the Kongamato sightings in some of these places? Like what is going on here? Is it a product of people just wandering into territory where they are not welcome? You know, like roost territory, that type of thing. Like fruit bats live in trees too, like things like that. So yeah, what do you think? This was obviously just a very brief sighting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but a few months later though, in 57, 1957, things got a little more extreme. It wasn't just a sighting. There was a pretty serious attack uh, from something completely <laughs> unexplained. And uh, we pulled this again from Adam's work over at the Pine Barrens Institute. Go check it out if you guys haven't already. But this is from 1957, where there was a patient on the verge of death admitted to a hospital at Fort Rosenberry. This is sort of similar to the same one. Um, a wound on the chest, scratches all over the body. Hospital staff asked him what attacked him, and he described a large bird-like creature with a long, large beak, long beak, and huge wings. The attending staff then asked the man if he could draw the animal for better identification, but when he produced the drawing of an animal resembling a pterosaur, flying reptiles from the Triassic to the late Cretaceous period, this is from Adam's article, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a servant brought a book to the hospital containing images, again, of the prehistoric animals, and he recognized them as the creature he had seen. Interesting. Now, there's a chance that this is actually the same story that I recounted earlier. I have a feeling. very yeah. similar. Yeah, me too. I kind of had that thought. I was With, like, hmm. it's It's similar, but it's minus the scratches and... I mean, it's the same general location, right? Like in Zambia, yeah. Fort Rosebury, which was like a pretty prominent location. Like I did look into that. There was a lot of kind of comings and goings with people in that mm-hmm. area there. But, but the the idea that too, like that he was shown this picture, had shown a picture of this kind of thing, and then he runs yeah. out in a screaming panic. Like that's just classic urban legend territory. Exactly. Right that's what I was going to say. Like it speaks to the um, the melding of like, yeah, oral tradition, urban legend, folklore yeah. of creatures that people are afraid of in the swamps that could easily just be bats. Mm-hmm. That are unidentified, which is well, still interesting in and of itself. That's going to be very terrifying to regular folk, you well, know? People are afraid of them. Yeah. Ace Ventura was afraid Ace of Ace Ventura, yeah, case in point. But, I mean, we lose sight, I think, of cryptozoology being interesting in and of itself with just, like, things that aren't necessarily, like, living dinosaurs, but that are still undiscovered. Mm-hmm. Like, would you be less interested in this story of the Kongamato if we knew definitively there were no living pterosaurs, New Guinea, anywhere? We're not talking the Ahul today. There's a million other ones. Well, it's just a more mundane creature that just hasn't been identified. And it's a subspecies of something that is similarly existing in other parts of the world. And I see what you mean. Like the idea, there's this melding of cryptozoology and the idea of like these supernatural elements tied to these creatures. Like even with something like the death worm, like, you know, like, oh, it can shoot like venom or electricity out of it kind of thing. Like that's kind of a crazy supernatural element. If this is literally just an unknown creature that just we just haven't pegged down with a name yet you know what i mean like yeah come becomes less fantastical but not less interesting to me no definitely not less interesting and then on the flip side too i guess finding the new species of the quote-unquote your quote-unquote more mundane creatures lends credence to the potential of the other discoveries too like the coelacanth yeah like that, we yeah. always come back to that or the wood bison or whatever i always bring up all the mm-hmm. time and different things like that do you want to jump ahead a little bit here to the 1980s Getting us a little bit more modern here. We wanted to talk about Roy Mackle, 
who we've mentioned before. I had him confused though when I threw this out to you earlier today. I was like, was that the same guy we mentioned from the Deathworms episode? It actually wasn't. That was Ivan Mackerley. Oh, yeah. Who was a Czech cryptozoologist. Whereas Roy Mackel uh, is a biologist from the University of Chicago. Uh, and he became interested in this story after there was a whole bunch of these European reports. There was a couple of Americans who had actually gone into uh, Zambia to look for this creature as well. Hmm. But he got really interested. He ended up traveling to the area that of the latest interest in the sightings, which was Nambia, which does border Zambia just by a sliver. Because Nambia actually is not landlocked, other li- uh, unlike some of these other states we've been talking about. Hmm. So he goes there traveling through some of these uh, swampy areas that do border Zambia. But like many others, all he essentially did was collect literally a ton, like binders full in some of these references (laughs) I talked to, of so many different people claiming that, oh, their grandma saw this, their (laughs) uncle got attacked by this, right? Their Mm -hmm. brother-in-law saw the Kongamato here. But it's all just secondhand verbal oral accounts right he didn't actually see it himself so he ends up going home but then it kind of sucked for him because as the story goes and we pulled this from cryptozoology a to z the lauren coleman book he had a colleague there with him who stayed over into the following year into 89 his name was james cossi or cosi k-o-s-i and he reported that he actually witnessed one of these birds if you want to call them that, one of these creatures. Creature, yeah. Massive, black, gliding, unidentified flying entity with white markings on the wings. Hmm, that's going to be It seemed to be traveling uh, between the hilltops. So whether it was a glider or a flyer, if you want to go back to that gliding thing we mentioned earlier, clearly not living in the swamps on the ground, but gliding in and amongst the hilltops of some of the more mountainous regions of, of Nambia, which I have never been. But anyway. Hmm. The white part is kind of interesting because we don't hear any of that in other reports. No. So that's kind of a unique feature. The gliding again. Yeah, that's kind of consistent with Adam's earlier descriptions and things of that nature too. So I don't know. Was there a reflection? Was the moon kind of reflecting off it? So where could this Kongamato reside possibly? Where is this supposed home? Of the beast. If we believe it exists, it has to reside somewhere. We have obviously a general idea as far as the regions and things of that nature, but let's get into some of these like specifics, like the Jindu swamps, for example, also known as the hmm, Bangwulu wetlands. Mm-hmm. And this is an ecosystem that's adjacent to a predominant lake in northeastern Zambia. And it covers about. 10,000 square kilometers. Pretty massive. In a region that's uh, predominantly made of floodplains, grasslands, woodlands uh, that are seasonally flooded, and permanent swamps that are fed by very, there's about four very predominant rivers that feed this area. Mm -hmm. So could the Kongamato hide in trees? Could it live like a crane? Could it live in in the roofs of these, like, really, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm picturing in wetlands, like, such as this, there's a lot of old growth going on here. Yeah. Lots yeah. of places that have been around for a long time. Could there be, like, almost, like, I'm picturing, you know, I don't know if you ever read these books, uh, Silverwing. It was a series, and it was Scholastic. It was a kid series. You read it when you're, like, in grade six or something. Sure, yeah. And I just remember thinking it was amazing, because, like, Silverwing was, like, this cute little bat, or whatever, and it follows him throughout all these different, like, Sunwing, and whatever. There's a whole whole series of these things but they live in this giant old tree 
all of them and until it burns in one book. But anyways, I just thought that was like, you know, like this could be very much like that. Or like, you know, even in the Lion King, we have uh, Rafiki living in that tree. That's pretty gnarly. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of crazy stuff happening around there. And like, it's a pretty, where we live is a very conservative landscape, I'll say. So this, there's a lot of wild going on. No, definitely. And the way it's described and a lot of the things we've talked about today make it sound as if, yeah, it's fishing in swamps. It's attacking indigenous peoples that are around the swamp that just happen to be either fishing or just in the area. Like it's not swooping down from hilltops in most accounts other mm. than literally the last one we just gave. Mm-hmm. Unless you're talking about some of the accounts in neighboring states, which happen to actually be a lot more menacing, really, because mm-hmm. Mount Kenya is actually even one of the possible locations or homes or you know origin points of the Kongamato or at least creatures like it but Kenya is a fair ways away from Zambia it definitely doesn't border Zambia you know it's a hop skip and a jump states wise in Africa Mm -hmm. but it's believed that yeah Kongamato descends from Mount Kenya as a death omen and really (laughs) it's called something different there the uh Batamzinga said to eat decomposing human flesh and even in some cases be digging up corpses Mm, that sounds like a vulture yeah i don't know yeah i mean digging them up i don't even know like that's even the idea of it being a death omen like vultures are very much associated with death in a lot of cultures oh absolutely no for sure i mean and yeah there's various different indigenous groups around this area of the mountain that believe that it flies to the ground nightly from the top of mount kenya sort of a sort of a nightly feeding ritual if you will so (laughs) that is a lot more lore like you know paranormal uh like the creature from Godzilla that I mentioned earlier in the episode, right? Yeah. Descending from the mountaintop. Not quite as epic uh, per se, but definitely yeah, along those lines. Totally. And Mount Kenya is, of course, a massive, massive mountain. Kilimanjaro is larger, mm-hmm. uh, the largest on the continent. And uh, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, a- another place that's said to be a potential location of the creature. One man had actually seen the Kongamato in flight close by uh, Kilimanjaro, apparently, um, at nighttime specifically. But this is just such an unidentifiable case. It's like there's so many different things you can see flying at night that look to be like a flying lizard. You know what I mean? Like a mm. prehistoric entity of some Interesting. Kind. So I'm leaning a little bit more towards a bat. The bat, And I think yeah. that's where you're leaning as well. And you've got a little, a little bit, bit more to say on that. More so because of the membrane sort of features of the wings and that type of thing. Distinct lack of feathers. The snout, again, kind of is loosely aligned with that too. There were some bats that we looked into that definitely could be in the range that we're talking about. So things like the giant golden crown flying fox, is, which is one of the largest bat species in the world and among the heaviest as, all, uh, as well. Sorry. Um, this is a likely culprit, you know, the habitat area, ugh, loosely, Matt, not loosely. This is a very loose, like this thing's known to kind of be more around the Southeast Asian region, Papua New Guinea, Australia, those types of things. So Papua New Guinea yeah, is like yeah. off the coast of Africa. So maybe they could make the leap over there. Possibly. The only thing that really bothers me about this, like the physical descriptors are pretty closely matched, but the eating slash hunting habits of these things is very different. The idea that it primarily feeds on flowers, nectar, fruits, non-carnivorous in nature. Not to say that it couldn't perhaps be like, you know, like defending its territory in some cases, but definitely not the type of predator that's going to like shred a human in a single go. No. 
the behaviors don't match up to me, which really does bother me. Uh, there was actually this YouTube video, we can put this in our notes, I guess, but of a U.S. military personnel that captured and hung up this giant bat that could be a flying fox if real. This thing is massive. So if you yeah. look at it, you can even just Google it yourself and it'll probably pop up. But yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things where closely aligned, but behaviors, eh, iffy, kind of. Right. Perhaps. I'm sort of, and I, I, yeah, I'm agreeing with you there unless it's just, yeah, I mean, it's a, not only an un- unidentified species, but an unidentified everything, mm-hmm. like all the behaviorology, like everything behind, like it just wouldn't make sense necessarily, right? It sounds much more aggressive. It sounds territorial. It sounds like a pterosaur, uh, mm-hmm. at least how they're portrayed in film and in things like that. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, pop culture reference. But yeah. of course they were said to have disappeared 65 million years ago lasting barely into the Cretaceous, you know, and, Mm -hmm. but they were massive, of course, you know, flying reptiles that look exactly like a lot of the descriptions of the Congamato. But I don't know. I mean, like the majority of these fossils have been found in like marine deposits, things like that. They were definitely fish eaters. So more coastal marine areas, right? Less inland regions, which is another sort of interesting thing because we're talking about landlocked inland swamps but of course if these creatures were still alive today and they were fishing on the coasts then we would see them Mm. or if there was versions of them you know what i mean yeah you know going back to one of our very earliest references was it the melon account of 23 Yeah, yeah and george melon was it i think so and he was saying or it wasn't him but it was someone later on that was basically kind of trying to say that fossils that had been found in the area that resembled pterosaurs and things like that were influencing the local populations to say that it was a pterosaur. Interesting, really. I don't know why I just thought of that right now, but the idea that if there were fossils found in that kind of area in that time, it was the era of dinosaurs and all that craziness going on too, like or just getting past the heydays of all that kind of thing. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, this is... It does closely match behaviorally and obviously... Descriptorally, if that makes sense. <laughs> the description matches, but the time frame does not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Misidentified birds is kind of what I'm leaning towards too, right? Because like we talked about, bat doesn't necessarily match up other than description. There's two specific species that live in these sort of swampy areas of Zambia specifically that could could fit the bill. The shoe, <laughs> pun intended, the shoe mm. bill stork is one of them, which is a very, very large, dark colored feathered bird, eight foot wingspan. It kind of has a prehistoric appearance to it, to be totally honest with you. And they've become pretty rare. Hmm. So you're not going to run into them all the time. So it would make sense if someone encountered it, it might sort of freak them out. But there's absolutely no evidence of the shoebill stork behaving aggressively at all towards humans. It also doesn't look membranous at all. It doesn't have teeth. All of these things, right? (laughs) There's another one. A lot of missing stuff. The saddle-billed stork. So another one in the area, they have an eight and a half foot wingspan, a very, very long, bright red bill that's sort of, and, and a horizontal uh, uh, black stripe uh, from uh, tip to tip, not the description. But there's wings either. and there's feathers and there's like, you know what I mean? It's, it's essentially just and the size. Feet. It's really just the size. So yeah. uh, I can see something appearing membranous if it's wet and it's it not the right fly. time of day. Well, no, sure, why not? I mean, birds dive in the water and pick stuff up and fly away. They're wet on the outside. You can soaked. tell, though. You oh, can tell. Oh, yeah, okay. They're steeper. You can, when you tell. can tell. You can tell. Come on. I guess we got to go to Zambia. I think birds around there. You can, look, <laughs> you can tell a bird from a bat. 
No. An eight foot, eight and a half foot wingspan <laughs> bird. Yeah, you can tell a bird's yeah. not bad, but yeah. <laughs> you're just saying, yeah. Yeah. Generally, like if I was looking at a crane in the sky, I can ju- I can tell that it's a crane. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm just writing this off too. Context matters, and it's hard to say. I think a lot of the time. But those are two pretty. I mean, those are really the only examples I could find. Where mm-hmm. like it's going to be big and it's there, and you could <laughs> you could mistake it for something. It's big. It's there. Buy it. It is. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, a great sales pitch. But they're not going to gut a man's chest. They're not. Gonna, no. They're not going to do anything. They don't have teeth either, as far as I'm aware. No. So, in the end, we're left with this question: Does the Kongamato exist? And if it does exist, <laughs> on into the portal, you guys know that that comes in sort of a spectrum of existence in our world physically as a cryptozoological entity that's yet to be discovered, or. Does it exist in the sense that it can be seen at certain times in certain places and maybe it does attack things or, you know, have run-ins with people, leaves traces, but isn't necessarily from this time or this place Mm -hmm. per se? Well, exactly. So it's the idea of like a time slip kind of, right? Like, are we experiencing something like that with a creature such as this? I think we, I mean, that's honestly where I'm kind of leaning because other than the massive Christian overlay that lens and people either a showing, yeah, wanting to believe that they're still living dinosaurs because they don't actually go back as far as people think, you know what I mean? And that's a big thing with Christian missionaries in central Africa and sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to these types of stories Mm -hmm. that came up in Michele and Bembe a lot. You know what I mean? I don't know what to make of it though, because people seem pretty genuine in what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. Some of it's got to be misinterpreted, but I'm leaning towards it's not a bat. It's not the shoebill stork. People are seeing something weird. I just don't think it's a pterosaur in the now. No. Per se. Okay. That's interesting. Because, yeah, you would think there would have to be quite a big population to sustain themselves, potentially. That's what my immediate thought was, at least. Right. Ah, then we get down <laughs> to the population sizes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All these sorts of things. But we want to know what you think. Yeah. Are you leaning towards bat? Are you leaning towards pterosaur? Are you leaning towards something else? We want to know. Or nothing altogether. Do you think this is or complete? nothing Not, altogether. Like, <laughs> Cautionary tale, perhaps? Perhaps, yeah. What if it's just culturally ingrained? It's a spirit that we've now interpreted as some sort of actual living creature that we've literally manifested into our own reality without any help from anyone but ourselves. Who knows? Let us know. <laughs> that was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. Just in- internalize all that, you guys, and then leave a comment below. <laughs> Yeah, we really do want to hear what you guys have to say about this and just about cryptozoology in general. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, are we even getting remotely close to figuring out if something like this exists? Because until we find a body, really, that's it, it always mm, comes down to that, right? It problem. always comes down to that. Same with Sasquatch, same with them all. But it is fun to talk about, though. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we'll be back hanging out with you guys again pretty soon here on uh, on Patreon. So uh, yeah. until next time on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.